This episode of Point Shot is brought to you by BenchClears. You can now visit BenchClears.com and use promo code AREA51SENTME to get 10% off on your order. So that is any of their air mesh style tanks and shorts, all of which are NHL officially licensed product. So you can support your team all summer long with Bench Clears. Welcome to another episode of Point Shot, everyone. We are with a man today that needs no introduction, but we like to get our guests, uh, we get to know our guests a little bit better here at Point Shot. So we're going to start off with our rapid fire questions. Uh, Matt, who is your favorite athlete of all time? Uh, Walter Payton, the uh, late running back of the Chicago Bears. We're a football family. My dad was a collegiate running back and just thought the world of Jim Brown and Jim Brown thought the world of Walter Payton. So I became a Bears fan and a Walter Payton fan at a very young age. That's a, yeah, it's nice to have your roots all the way back to a football team like that. eh? Well, yeah, I mean, um, it's funny because neither of my parents came from a hockey background. They both grew up in Montreal, you know, watching all those Habs dynasties over the years. Uh, and my dad played like most every sport, but not a lot of hockey. So we sort of came to hockey, um, I came to hockey when I, uh, my family moved to Calgary uh, when I was three, four years old and the Flames were just new there. They had moved from Atlanta and uh, it was a pretty exciting time. Like we were very much fish out of water in, in uh, Southern Alberta, <laughs> uh, but you know, the one common language in Canada is hockey. So, you know, we sort of uh, adopted the Flames at that point. And of course they, you know, would go on to have a pretty, uh, a pretty enthralling team through the 1980s with some great players and whatnot. So uh, yeah, no, uh, my hockey background comes really uh, from my uh, my uncle who had season tickets at the Forum in Montreal. And so I used to go, you know, like a little knee high to a grasshopper. And then we moved to Calgary and jumped on board the Flames bandwagon. And uh, from that point forward, like hockey became, you know, right there with football as the two sports that we followed the most. Very cool. So what was the best concert that you've ever been to? Oh, boy. Uh, I think it has to be the Tragically Hip show, the final hurrah tour that they did here at Rogers Arena. I, I like the hip a ton. Uh, I have seen them a lot. They wouldn't necessarily be my favorite band, but, you know, needless to say, the, the stakes were a little bit different that night, right? Like everybody knew that that would be the last time they were seeing Gord Downey perform. And just the emotion that was coursing through that crowd that night 
was something entirely different, uh, an experience and, and an emotion I hadn't felt anywhere else. So I'll go with that one. Yeah, that's a, another fantastic answer. <laughs> uh cathartic it would be a, a very yeah. surreal experience i can only imagine mm -hmm. what uh show are you watching right now huh good question what show am i watching <laughs> uh, you know most people this well, pandemic have been just hurting for new material yeah. i think everyone's just felt like they've watched every single movie and tv show that's ever existed so that, you know hey fair. if we can inspire something new disney plus uh yeah. <laughs> no. i um I, I gotta say, I don't watch a ton of like comedies or dramas. I do watch um, like docu-series. I actually watch a lot of documentary programming on top of news and information and sports. Um, but we did watch MasterChef Canada. I think it just ended last weekend. So I'm a sucker for a good <laughs> cooking show uh, reality contest. So Matt, I'll go with MasterChef Canada. That's uh, a good one. My my old university roommate was on the first season and uh, again, you know just be able to uh, to laugh at him you got eliminated on a cheesecake and obviously yeah my internet god damn uh, what is the uh, what is the best vacation that you've ever been on huh. another good one um a year ago, Christmas, um, I went to London, England for the first time as an adult uh, with my parents and my brother. Now, my, my mom's a Brit, so she has all sorts of uh, family there. Uh, amazing city, amazing vacation. Uh, but my girlfriend and I have done some pretty cool vacations as well, uh, including one in Miami, Florida, a couple years ago for my cousin's wedding, which was great fun. So a uh, little column A, little column B there. That's awesome. I, I've been to London once and it was such a quick rapid fire tour that I felt so ripped off by the end of it. Yeah. Like there's so much to see and we had so little time there that I felt yeah. like we saw most of the things through like a bus window. Yeah. So if there was ever a city that I wanted to go back and redo, it's probably London. Sean, we did like almost two weeks there and I sort of felt the same thing towards the end. It's just so overwhelming, right? Like you get dropped yeah. off in the city and you look uh, we were staying just south of the Thames. And so you look across the Thames and you see all these like iconic structures that you've known all your life. And you're seeing them with the naked eye for the first time. Right. Um, so we tried to cram as much as we could uh, in. The, the thing I love about it is just such a great walking city. You know, so long as it's not yes. pouring rain, you sit there and you walk around go from one site to the next. You stop at a pub for a refreshment, of course. And, um, so yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Amazing city. I spent nearly two weeks there and I feel like just scratched the surface. Yeah. You got, you got more fortunate than I did, was. I think I ended up with four days and yeah. it was just like, it's impossible. You, you have to, I think you need to take like a month in London to, to be able to get it all or as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To me to be in Europe for, you know, the Euro Cup or, or one of those tournaments would just be, you know, obviously I'm not even a soccer fan, yeah. but just to be in that environment, uh, you know, it'd be, I'm sure, Olympic-like. Uh, of course, you know, I'm sure we all have good memories uh 2010, walking down Georgia Street, high-fiving cops, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we did We did get to soccer. We got to a footy match at the um, London Stadium, the Olympic Stadium. Uh, we saw West Ham and Leicester. 
and we, we made the full day of it, you know, did sort of like, you know, the supporters pub and the march to the match and all that stuff. And just met some uh, incredible people there. And, of course, uh, West Ham's and East End London team. So you have all the Cockney accents and turns of phrase. <laughs> Amazing day. My, bro- my, brother, my brother and I still talk about it here a year and a half later. How many new swear words did you learn? <laughs> it, it was less swear words, just more of the sort of the turns of phrase. Like, it was an angry crowd that day. West Ham hadn't been having a great year. In fact, they sacked the manager after that game. So we walked in there. And it was kind of an angry crowd right off the bat. We could sense they weren't too happy with the home side. And, you know, the thing, uh, my brother and I almost had like sore ribs because we were elbowing, elbowing each other with every like little turn of phrase and barb that came from the crowd, including like old ladies. Like we're talking 70, 80 year old ladies throwing some venom uh, at their club. So, it, no, it was uh, it was an amazing experience. And I think, you know, if I go back, it's going to be high on my list. Uh, to get to a couple of more um, English Premier League matches, including, like, I want to see one at an old grounds. Like, you know, the thing about the London Stadium was a spectacular stadium all that, but, you know, I've been pretty fortunate in my career. I've, I've been around this world and our continent seeing, you know, a number of amazing new facilities. I now want to go into that sort of grubby old footy ground and, and watch a match from, like, a Stamford Bridge or a... Uh, I was even told the uh, the little cottage there for Fulham uh, works pretty well. So, you know, I, th- that's my next step is I, is I want to go to one of these hallowed old footy cathedrals for a premiership match. We should use Come sack on. more instead of just fire. Sack the, ma- sack the manager. Such a great term. Yeah, I'm, no, I, love I know. It. And it's like, I don't, I'm not even sure you're allowed to say fire the manager in a soccer context. <laughs> it has to be sacked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that one inspired another question. Where were you in 2810 when Sidney Crosby scored the golden goal? Uh, about eight rows up behind the penalty boxes oh. at uh, Rogers Arena or Canada Hockey Place, as they called it. Uh, I was covering the game for the Globe and Mail. Um, it Tough is, job, but someone's got to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's the best hockey game <laughs> I've ever seen. It is clearly one of my um, all-time best memories and career highlights. Uh, I've told this story on our show before. It is the one um, game that I covered where I felt I couldn't disassociate my allegiance and and stay objective throughout the proceedings. When things got tight late in the third period and then into the overtime, uh, you know, a sensation came over me that is different than any other sporting event that I've covered um, to the point where at one point when Canada looked to have uh, a winning goal, I almost sort of jumped up out of my seat and caught myself. And there was a reporter sitting next to me from Newsday on Long Island. And he sort of looked at me and I went, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm... And he said, Hey, don't worry, bro. Like if it was the U S I might've done the same thing here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty amazing. Uh, there have been a few crowds and a few buildings that I've seen dressed and, and as loud and as electric as that crowd. And uh, I count myself very lucky to be one of the 20,000 people who got to see it live. Absolutely. That's awesome. Last one for you. Who is your celebrity crush? Huh. <laughs> huh. You can't say Blake. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, who do I like? Tough questions. Let me man. come back to that one. Okay. All right. When, okay. Whenever you, uh, whenever it inspires in your head. Yeah. Because uh, you actually kind of touched on one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about today, and it's kind of a common theme that we, you know, we talk to of you know professionals like you versus amateurs like us. You know, it's one of the things that we get to enjoy is that we get to be you know un- un- unapologetic fans. Uh, you know, cheer as hard as we want. And of course, you know, we, we do this uh, on a voluntary basis because we have such a passion for the Vancouver Canucks and wanting to see them succeed. So, you know, we, we get to be as biased as we want. Uh, but it's a common theme, of course, that, you know, it seems like, you know, as you become a professional and more established in this business, your fandom, you know, I don't want to say gets kind of sucked out of it, but, you know, it's it's harder to be as, you know, a, just a fun you know, unapologetic fan uh, as it used to be. Why do you think that's so common, so important? And is there, is it a, you know, <laughs> is it a part of the hockey code that you, you just kind of, uh, you know, your professionals or is there some sort of, you know, spoken, uh, you know, a- arrangement uh, between you and employers or things like that, that, you yeah. know, it's really important for you to maintain your objectivity. Well, um, first thing I'd say is it goes beyond hockey. Like it, it's typically, you know, it, it's broad enough that it's most sports, certainly in the North American sports. And it is changing. Uh, I will say you're seeing more and more sort of fan journalism, advocacy journalism on side reporting. Uh, depending on the outlet you work for, it's kind of expected. Like, you know, TSN National Television is not going to hire someone to indulge their fandom of a team while being an insider or an analyst or something. Not like the Leafs, of course. But, you know, like a TSN radio outlet, uh, Sportsnet radio outlet may very well, you know, hire uh, someone who is front and, uh, up front about being a certain fan, uh, of being a fan of a certain team. Um, for me, it was always important because you have to be able to disassociate the emotion that you feel as a fan from your reporting and your commentary on the team. Um, for example, you know, if you're a fan of the Vancouver Canucks these days, I think it is very easy to fall into the camp of, I don't know why people are giving Benning and the Canucks such a hard time. They're doing their best, blah, 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 or fire Benning. He's totally over his head. He has no business running a team, yada, yada, yada. Um, more often than not, there's always the middle ground. More often than not, the truth is always a little bit uh, closer to the middle than the two extremes of fandom. And uh, I must say, like, I do, uh, I do, um, um, I do sort of uh, love to see the broad spectrum that fandom now falls under, you know, from the hear no evil, see no evil ostriches who buried their head and everything about the team is great to the what are they doing guy, right? Where every single move gets criticized through a certain prism. So I've always felt it, um, I've, I've always felt that you're, your reporting, your analysis, and your commentary is better if you're able to disassociate any kind of allegiance or fandom with the team that you cover. And, you know, that's how I was raised as a, a journalist and a broadcaster. And uh, that's something that I, you know, I don't think is going to go away. What I will say is um, after moving into radio, um, I did sort of allow myself to be a little bit more forward with my fandom. Now, I don't root for a lot of teams out there, um, but the Chicago Bears and the NFL and the Toronto Blue Jays and Major League Baseball are two of them. 
And I have sort of found that sort of re reconnecting, if you will, with that fandom, which as you say, uh, as you say, Malcolm was a little bit sort of lost or at least put on the shelf for a certain portion of my career. Uh, career. That's helped me understand fans a little bit better. And how would you say it's changed from, of course, being at TSN 1040 to now Sakaras and Price, your own ship? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, do you feel like, you know, you're a little bit more untethered now and, uh, you know, can be kind of as true to yourself as you really want to be? Uh, yes, but not necessarily in the realm of fandom. Uh, I don't sense any changes there, at least not yet. Um, but untethered... Uh, untethered professionally in terms of being able to do what we want to do without any kind of corporate red tape or considerations. Now the digital space is also different too, right? Like you're not governed by a CRTC license. And so that's a little bit different. Hell, you're not necessarily as governed by, uh, you know, the clock uh, as you are uh, in a mainstream media outlet. Although, we do do a three hour live show. So we do have some signposts and have to hit, have to maintain somewhat, somewhat of a clock, but you know, like if the Canucks were to have made a huge trade on Monday, Labor Day or um, this past Victoria day, Monday, um, we weren't planning to do a pot or anything like that. We're taking this, the day off the stat. If the Canucks had made a huge trade, we would have, you know, jumped in and done something that day spur of the moment. So um, there are certainly some differences um, it, it has been oddly liberating. That's the term Blake and I were using for a while there, um, to not necessarily be, you know, these two tiny cogs in this huge telecom empire. And, uh, uh, I must say, um, I, I do find it is creating a more intimate relationship between us, our audience and our partners. And that's something that I, um, that's something I feel, I find very rewarding. That's something I'm delighting in right now. Yeah, you much know, more direct. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's it. Yeah. And selfishly for us, of course, the the quality of content in Vancouver, of course, after hitting that low point, you know, between you guys, you know, three van casts a week, you know, the team with uh, Donnie and Dolly, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you know <laughs> us as the fans, it really could have yeah. worked out any better. I, uh, I, you know, unapologetically love Good Morning Football, and I've always gone like, yeah. man, if we could have a Good Morning Hockey. And now we do with the team. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I it's um, it's very interesting. The media environment is changing quite rapidly. And uh, in terms of the sports media environment in Canada, I think you can say that Vancouver is ground zero here uh, for new modeling and for potentially the future and what all of this is going to look like. Um, look, um, having worked at TSN, having worked at the Globe Mail, National Post, having worked in the Southern newspaper chain, um, you get to understand some things about the way this country is covered, not just in the sports realm, but it's probably most pronounced in the sports realm, and it's probably most pronounced in the sports realm right now with the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, and Montreal Canadiens series. And, and that is, you know, Toronto is just such a big market. It is so commercially important that if you're a telecom with a shareholder price and need to show a profit in your media division and all that, you saturate coverage of the Toronto markets to make sure you're not losing out there, you're not losing market share, you're not losing dollars, you're not losing eyeballs and ears. I get it. I understand that. If I was in the chair, uh, decision-making chair, I might do the same. 
the problem is they have done that for so long with so very little attention to the periphery, with so very little attention to other markets, including big and substantial markets like our own in Vancouver, but really all of British Columbia. And um, I think what you're seeing here is community forces basically saying, hey, what you've provided is not good enough for us. We have higher expectations. Uh, we love hockey, too. We should get just as much on our Canucks as Toronto gets on its Leafs and is, is uh, distributed nationally on the Leafs. And so I think what we're seeing here is um, particularly as these big you know, um, corporations um, uh, particularly as the big corporations, you know, are looking at the their media assets and saying, "Gosh, it's you know they don't pay as much as they used to. Or the return on investment isn't as much as it used to be." Is you're seeing um, communities take back their coverage and saying, "Okay, you know, if you're not going to provide this to us because it's not a spending priority in a company that has so many different arms and has to make some tough decisions about where it's going to invest its capital." Um, then we're willing to pick up the slack. We're willing to fill the gap that you leave behind. Um, we have been overwhelmed with the amount of interest there has been from the business community here in Vancouver for our presentation slash podcast. I'm not necessarily sure that would be the case if the bigger media companies had been more dutiful in tilling the soil here in BC and Vancouver and giving sports media consumers here what they want. Completely agree. Great points. I, I like that. I like that communities are starting to take that back. It's uh, communities now have the tools and the resources available uh, that may not have otherwise been there um, yes. primarily before the digital age uh, to be able to create their own content and, and yeah. to directly support those so yeah. it's awesome to see that uh Sakaris and price is is doing that well and and is <laughs> back we, we missed it uh, tremendously after 1040 fell yeah and sean <laughs> i'll just picking up you make a great point too that you know two things have happened here uh with technology that have allowed this to take place number one now the equipment is pretty readily available and pretty affordable. I mean, look at the four of us here talking, right? Yeah. Uh, we all see each other. And secondly, the distribution channels are there as well with social media, which again, never used to be the case. So if you have the tools that you need to, to do it, and then you have distribution channels available where, you know, a broad section of the public can consume it, um, you know, uh, those are two things that forever media companies had in spades and the public did not. And so um, this is why we're at where we're at. Do you think more people might start um, wanting to start their own shows as opposed to, you know, just joining like a large company yeah. like a TSN, Sportsnet, that kind of thing? Yeah. So um, the one thing that I've learned in my uh, early months here in the digital space is that it is very difficult to predict the digital space, uh, Bill. So I'm not necessarily sure where all of this is going um because let's face it blake and i did have the platform of being on tsn and terrestrial radio to be able to build up our brand to get to where we were for a launch that was able to draw you know thousands of listeners for uh, a launch that was able to draw you know a dozen or so uh sponsors uh, and business partners 
I'm not necessarily sure we would have had those advantages. In fact, I know full well we would not have had those advantages if we didn't have the base in traditional media uh, to be able to launch like this. Same goes for someone like Dan Levitard, south of the border at um, you, formerly ESPN and the Miami Herald, right? Like he had a TV show, he had a column, he had a podcast. And, uh, you know, basically when they started screwing around with him a little bit, he decided, I'm out of here. I'm going to take my brand and, and own my own brand and own my own contents and take control of my career. So I think you're going to see more of that. And I certainly think you're going to see more uh, grassroots startup um, media entities going forward. I'm not necessarily sure what the commitments of, um, and I say big media companies, but let's face it, in Canada, it's really telecoms more than anything. You know, I, I'm interested to see what the, um, what the commitment level is of telecoms to do media and sports media and local broadcasting and all the things that they've seen pretty, um, pretty quick to cut uh, in the last decade. So I don't necessarily know exactly uh, where it's going. What I do know is that um, good contents now is somewhat agnostic. It doesn't really matter. If you're doing good contents now, at some point, you should be able to cultivate uh, a commercial audience. I don't necessarily think you need the big media companies like you did in the past. Yeah, as you touched on it, you know, it's everyone's got their own reach now. Everyone's got a, you know, thousand plus Twitter followers and you can put it out to that. And, Not you me. know, that's a reach exclusive. Well, we'll get you there, Bill. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, a reach that people didn't have before. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping you could take us behind the scenes because, you know, kind of touching on Twitter there a little bit. One of the things that has always kind of bugged me is, you know, when people like you or, of course, others put out a story and then people attack you thinking that you've just made this up or pulled it out of thin air. So can you kind of tell us what's the process of chasing down a lead or, or, you know, picking up a scoop? Um, not, not industry yeah, secrets well, or anything no, like no, that, no, but no, just go. Yeah. yeah. I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying, Malcolm. Um, it, it sort of does depend on, on the specifics of the story. Um, but, but really there is, um, there is no alternative to just basic reporting, picking up the phone and calling people and getting information and then taking that information and having it fuel another round of questions with another round of, uh, of, of contacts and, and sources and people that you go to. And, and then just assembling the information that you have and checking it and double checking it. Uh, putting it into context and then uh, giving it a meaningful and hopefully easy to follow narrative front to back. So um, that's, you know, still, there are some basics about doing a story that I'm not sure are going to change based on, you know, the technology and the means of distribution. Uh, I do think there are more people out there doing it. I do think there are more people out there doing it irresponsibly. Uh, and I do think there are more people out there who are distrustful of mainstream media. So I think that's why you're seeing a little bit of the brouhaha that you see uh, on social media when news and when exclusive story uh, gets out there and gets broken. And look, there's a long tradition of shooting messengers that goes way back 
before the advent of any kind of broadcast goes uh, uh, goes back before the advent of even the printing press. So, you know, that's not changing. And, um, you know, for the most part, the way I deal with it is, you know, I consider the source, uh, you know, anybody who, you know, gets in my Twitter mentions and says, you know, oh, you just make stuff up. Well, okay, there's no reasoning with that person. I'm not going to bother engaging with that person. You know, if somebody has a, a nuanced criticism, if somebody has a good question that I didn't answer in, in our, in my reporting, I'm happy to engage and, and indulge that, uh, you know, you got to be accountable to the people that you report to, uh, to your audience. So I'm happy to do that. I just try and do my best to ignore the baseless trolls and those who just want to shoot messengers. Samesies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what, you know, when does, when have you heard enough or, you know, what is the threshold because uh, I'm sure, again, you know, we've discussed that, you know, maybe you've heard some stuff that uh, we had uh, come out on our podcast, but of course, didn't you didn't report it yourself. So is there a certain threshold of, you know, hey, I need to have this verified three times or, you know, I need to hear it from this person or, or someone like this before, you know, you go, I'm ready to report this myself? It depends on the your relationship with those who are providing the information, how trustworthy you believe them to be and how much firsthand reporting you're able to do. So I have some people that I talk to in hockey and football who, if they tell me something, I know they're positioned at a level to absolutely know. I know for a fact that the information is accurate and I am happy to go with that. Um, And I'm happy to go with that information single source. There is other information that I get that, you know, may not be complete. Um, Maybe I don't have the longest standing relationship with the person who's giving it to me. Maybe they even say, well, I'm not 100% sure, but this is what I think is happening. Uh, That's the point where you get into uh, requiring um, more sourcing, more background, more people confirming or at least pointing you uh, in the right track and saying you're in the right direction or no, you've landed, you've arrived there. And, and that's what the story is. So it changes story to story. It changes source to source. It, it depends a lot in terms of what is the well of information you're pulling from, whose well of information you're pulling from. And so, of course, you just have some people that you talk to and, and maybe they give you a little tidbit here and there. And then, of course, you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then maybe someone else mentions it. And then, of course, you go to verify it. I, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm endlessly interested in this kind of stuff. So just, you know, how, how the process, you know, exactly kind of works. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm a little bit hesitant to get into too many specifics here, Malcolm. I appreciate uh, a second follow up on it. No, here's what I will say. Like, I'll just give an example. Um, Reporter friend from across the country says, hey, I'm hearing this about your team. Well, I'm not going to take that and just go with it. You know, he's hearing it or she's hearing it. Um, They don't have intimate firsthand knowledge. It's something that's a little closer at that point to speculation or rumor than it is to hard concrete info. That's not something you're going to take and just blast out and go, oh, you know, this is happening. And I know that because I have a reporter friend a few provinces away who is hearing that. Uh, somebody positioned at a, the NHL head office, um, 
at a team level in a senior executive position calls you up or an agent who, you know, has clients calls you up and says, Oh, by the way, this is happening. Well, that's something that might be a little bit more concrete, particularly if you trust, you know, that person, that, that team official, that agent, what have you. Um, now you're probably not just going to take it right there and put it out verbatim. You want to do a little checking. You want to do a little bit more investigation. It's always good practice to try and uh, reach out to the people you're reporting about as well. Um, but there are different sort of routes and skews that get you to a reported story. Uh, and pretty much everyone is going to be a little bit different. There's not, there's not too many that are exactly alike. Appreciate that. I like that too, because there's a lot of information too that teams do want to share through the media um, that they don't want to necessarily write a full press release or anything yes. on. Uh, they want to either test the waters of fan reaction, uh, the market reaction. Um, they've got a, a few different reasons why they would want to do that, but they do very commonly share information with people like yourself and and to just disperse that information out. And I know, like I'm, I'm thinking about a recent example, of course, with the, the Sedines in Vancouver and uh, them kind of putting out it's seemingly very early now, as as there's still no announcement that they would be coming back in some capacity, uh, and then just kind of sliding in uh, that Jim Benning would also be returning. Mm -hmm. How much of that is smokescreen, and how much of it is for timing, um, and how much of it is just kind of fan reaction gauging? Do you think? So trial ballooning. Yeah. Well, I guess we're gonna find out, right? <laughs> i'm not sure we've reached final judgment on that yet yeah um, fair i do um i do think the vancouver canucks wanted daniel and henrik and potentially joining the front office out there darren gregor was first on the story if i'm not mistaken uh, i have an idea of you know where darren got it not going to go down that road, but I understand a little bit of Darren's process. Excuse me. Um, and yeah, I do think it was a little bit of PR cover uh, to help assuage fans who are wholly upset that a general manager who was for the most part failed over seven years was going to be brought back for an eighth year. Um, so I do think in this case, it was tactical and strategic packaging of information a little bit of sweet a little bit of sour um we'll see where that Sedin's element goes uh i understand benning was on with rick and don today talking about that and making it sound almost like a feta complete it does sound like there's going to be some role for the twins going forward um so in that case it wasn't simply a, a trial balloon i guess you could argue i guess you can argue there was some, there was some concrete fact to the reporting, and uh, you know it developed as it's going to develop, and you know we'll see what uh, what titles they have and what kind of authority they have, because uh, to me those are the most interesting questions in all of this. Do you think Francesco Acquilini has really thought this through? And I ask that because I think it's a point that we've, you know, I know you've touched on as well. After doing what he did to Linden, 
-hmm. he simply cannot do that again to the Sedins. I I brought it up on our last podcast too. You know, there's no way that they'll be able to mutually part ways this time, you know, and the Sedins brothers, you know, backbone, they'll be able to stand up to Francesco and say, you know, listen, we're no, we're we're not just going to capitulate like Lyndon did. So do you think he's actually considered that fact? Because it seems like, you know, again, from my perception, at least Francesco's, you know, Geppetto and, and Benning is his Pinocchio right now. And he loves his Pinocchio because he can make him dance and do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. But if he, and he's kept him here because he and wants Pinocchio to continue to do the that. Fire, right. Pinocchio takes the criticism and the fire as much as Geppetto. Exactly. He doesn't, you know, he's uh, behind the scenes. He gets to go, well, hey, I give the, you know, direction at the beginning of the year and let these hockey people make their decisions, even though we all know that's not true. And, you know, he tweets and doesn't respond to anything that he gets back. And, you know, it's clear that, you know, he's not interested in a Jerry Jones role uh, where he actually has to step up and, uh, and, you know, and face the music. Um, But I'm, I'm just wondering, like, you know, has he got so short-sighted and focused on who, if I can just keep my my Pinocchio around, you know, I'll be good and, and has realized that, you know, they've got another way and, and you know, he's he's going to get beat because there's going to be someone else now in that head office who's willing to stand up to them? Oh. Seems like we yeah. lost you there. Muted? You're back. Okay. Sorry. A phone call just came in. Um, I don't know if he's thought it through. He may know some things that we all don't, including, you know, maybe the family's going to sell the team at some point. And so he's not going to have to deal with this cross. This won't be his cross to bear. I think for the most part, Francesco lurches from one thing to the other to try and placate what can be hostile forces within the fan base and frankly, within his own company and his own family. Um, because you can bet your bottom dollar that the Aquilini family, Patriarch Luigi, his brothers Roberto and Paolo, uh, sit there and look at the Vancouver Canucks in, over the last few years and go, how come they don't bring in nearly as much money as they used to bring in? And of course, that's team performance. Um, I think uh, Francesco likes running the team. I think Francesco delights in being in the hockey business. And um, I think it's just about going from one diversion to the next, one shield to the next, to make sure that he can continue on doing this, even with re- even with results um, that don't necessarily show that he's very good at it. So um, I also think that he got off really easy, far easier than I would have anticipated with the Trevor Linden mutual parting of ways. You know, there was a time there where I thought if Francesco brings Trevor into the fold officially, he's effectively surrendering the deed of the franchise because uh, Trevor is so popular that you can't fire Trevor Linden. Well, uh, it seems like he found a mealy-mouthed way to fire Trevor Linden uh, and threw number 16 enough money to keep him quiet about it that he was able to preserve his hold on the team and uh, offset any kind of, you know, math revolt from the fans, as well as the citizens of British Columbia, who of course hold Trevor in such high regard uh, and, and get out of it, get away with it. So I think he's empowered by that to some degree. And I suspect that that is also part of what's driving this Sedine thing is that, Hey, you know, 
Um, we heard Trevor didn't work, but he put some deodorant on the franchise for a few year, years. He served as a useful front-facing front executive who people were charmed by and particularly charmed by when they got to you know, see him live and in the flesh. Um, and, you know, all the personal appearances that Trevor, you know, did, you know, Trevor makes people feel great about themselves in person. He's got an absolute gift. Twins got a little bit of that, uh, as well. And I suspect that, uh, there's a belief at Canucks Sports Entertainment that they will be serviceable in this regard as well. And what do they get out of it? Well, they get, um, you know, they get their foot in the door and they get their learning process started on the hockey business. So, uh, mutually beneficial to someone, uh, to some regard. I think, you know, it's just the first time you can chalk it up to coincidence, other external factors, you know, it being such a difficult time in the franchise, you know, clearly choosing the wrong direction. And, and you know, hey, like sometimes it just doesn't work out between two people. But it's, you know, to me, it's that, you know, huh, you know, you, you keep being, you know, one of the people who, you know, is involved in all these situations that, you know, just seemingly can't get along with one. I, I you know, I don't, I know we don't yeah, need to and, list and, and all the excellent executives who've left the franchise, but. And here's what I'd say to that. It is very hard to divorce your team. Not many people are willing to divorce their team, set their love and allegiance and their fandom aside, disassociate, no longer support, no longer consume, um, you know, it, it, it takes some pretty extreme behavior or some really extreme poor results over a long period of time before you will get to a point where you're out of fans, particularly in a constituency this large. So to some degree, you know, for every fan that he loses, so long as there's 18,000 plus to Phil Rogers Arena, which of course there wasn't the last time we saw them on the ice. And so long as there are enough eyeballs that uh, are going to watch the games on television to be able to drive decent rights fees from local television and sponsorships, then you can continue on with these sorts of moves and this, these sort and these sorts of behaviors. And you're not going to get to a point where, you know, the earth is scorched. I, you know, I totally agree with you, other than the fact that, to me, driving the Sedins out of the franchise would be that catastrophic, you know, devastating watershed moment to the franchise where I think a lot of those true blue fans would go, you know what, this is these are the Sedins. Yeah. The, these are literally the two be best players who have ever, you know, worn the jersey. And, you know, as good as they were players, they were even better people. Yeah, and, yeah, I and think it's so right. fresh in everyone's memory. Like to me, that's that's you know, it's the failsafe on this that we you know may have because uh, you know again, I'm, you know, it doesn't sound like they're coming in in a, a you know significantly powerful uh, capacity. So I can't imagine they're going to be you know influencing what's going to be happen you know, player personnel wise uh, this summer. Uh, so uh, you know, it, it it's it's just that's one of the things that I'm like. I, it just doesn't make sense to me. I, I, that's that's the you know, I, boys laugh at me. I'm. I just need things to make sense. I, I just need to understand. Like you know, had at the opening press Benning's opening press conference in 2014, had you sat sat down and said, hey, you know, at the end of seven years, we're going to be finishing last in the division. We're going to have all these you know people, and we're going to bring seemingly every single one back except Ian Clark, the one guy that everyone brought back who. Apparently, and you know, 
we're only willing to offer him a two-year deal and he wants five? Like, like, you know, explain to me why would you not want to have a matching contract with the goalie that you just locked yeah. in? That, you know, it makes all the sense in the world to me that the Canucks should be pushing for a five-year deal. What's, what's you know, a theoretical new coach going to want differently for me and Clark? Like, you're good. <laughs> just keep doing that. <laughs> well, I'll say a few things. Uh, number one, you know, in, in no world did Jim Benning sit down with the Aquilini family seven years ago and say, you know what, in nine years, we're going to be really, really good if you commit to me and my plan, to the extent there was a plan. So needless to say, things have not gone as he anticipated, and he's got no one but himself to blame in, in that uh, on that accord because, you know, he's done his utmost to screw this up, even while thinking he's helping. The second thing I'll say, Malcolm, is if you're looking for something to, if you're, if you need things to make sense, you were covering the wrong franchise. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> you know, logic and reason and rationality and some of the tools, common tools of understanding that you, me, and a large part of thinking people rely upon aren't always in uh, full force at Connect Sports and Entertainment. And that's because you effectively uh, have a demagogue uh, sort of owner who uh, people cater to his whims. People are not particularly empowered in that franchise to make their own decisions. People are not uh, empowered in terms of autonomy. And so you have the mess that you have. I just don't understand how you can be successful in other businesses uh, you know, clearly they don't apply those fun. same. This, this one's more one's fun. More fun. Yeah. Restaurants are fun. Joy. This uh, is the one <laughs> that isn't as serious as the others. This is the diversion. Right? Wasn't wasn't the Aquilini's intention when they purchased the franchise to you know bring prestige to their name to be the family who brought a Stanley Cup back to Vancouver? Like I it seemed they, like. Like that's what they were really trying to accomplish is, you know, to make the Aquilini name synonymous in Vancouver with championships and winning. And now it seems like they got distracted playing fantasy GM and are going to drive this franchise in the, in the ground because it's fun. I, uh, I do think that was the intent. I still think that is the aim and the goal. And somewhere along the line, I think they have been caught up in the trappings of just the glamour of owning the franchise. Um, that's why I think, you know, these, you know, the, the Aquilini out banner and, of course, you know, the, the day that, you know, the opening opening night, I, my, my plan is will be to purchase some scalper tickets from a, another season ticket member so money's not going into Franco's pockets. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine that building is not going to be rocking with, you know, fire Benning and then Aquilini out chance alternating all day. All, uh, that's my intention. Yeah. I'd it's be a been... little surprised on opening night. I think it's going to be sort of a, a celebration of society coming back and being able to gather. And I suspect frontline workers and Dr. Bonnie Henry. And so I imagine it's going to be an emotional pregame that probably touches part of the heart, you know, touches hearts and minds in a different way than, you know, let's immediately start chanting for somebody's ouster. But I do think that that is a likely scenario if the team struggles out of the gate and, you know, I do think you're going to be looking at a team that's somewhat under-talented and thus at some point is going to hit its first rough spot. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, I just kind of caught clips uh, and little bits from uh, the team, Donnie and Dolly's 
uh, interview with Jim Benning this morning, but uh, they did ask him, you know, what was your reaction to things like the fire Benning uh, banner, uh, the, the small protest that was organized outside Rogers arena. I, I, I liked his response to a very hard question. And it was that, you know, it's harder for his family, his daughter, uh, things like that. I think in, in the nature of his job and kind of how transient it can be, uh, you kind of come to expect that, you know, you're not going to get a decade to, to try to learn on the job or uh, 10 different kicks at the can. You're going to have at certain points, you're going to have people not like you or people celebrate you. Um, kind of as far as like asking for people's heads goes, like how much of that is just kind of fans being fans and how much of it, like at what point does it kind of cross the line? Do you think? Um, Cause I understand like that he, he's a, he's a person, he's got yeah. a family, but obviously his jobs are different than yeah. like, if you were to go to a restaurant yeah. and chant for your yeah, server no, to get and, canned. And like, and Jim is a thoroughly decent man. Uh, yeah. He's honestly the type of guy that, you know, you'd want to look after your kids. Uh, he is, he is just a, a, a deeply nice man. Um, I got a lot of time for Jim Benning, the person. Uh, but if you want to be a general manager in a National Hockey League franchise, it is one of the most public jobs out there. If you screw up, you're going to screw up in a very public way. It's also, as you mentioned, an extremely insecure and transient job. Uh, there's only so many of them the world over, and they don't tend to last last long periods of times so you have to go in eyes completely wide open and understand that and you have to understand that part of the job is going to be taking some of the slings and arrows from your customers from fans when they're upset and particularly when things go poorly and particularly when you are the root cause of things going poorly now i can certainly sympathize with families um pro sports and you know, even frankly, um, sports media do not jive well with families. Families pay an extremely hard price um, when their husbands or wives, daughters, sons are involved in the um, in the business of professional sports. Uh, it takes a lot of time. Things happen that are not on your schedule. And so, you know, birthdays, anniversaries, vacations, all sorts of things get missed. And it can be particularly difficult when you have all of that going on to begin with. And then all of a sudden you have these very public displays of wanting your loved one out of his or her position. So I get all of that. In terms of crossing the line, well, uh, I'll use a recent example. I can understand why that one fan on Canucks Twitter snapped a photo of Jim doing his groceries that one day i i can understand it only because had he not just returned from texas is he not supposed to be quarantining was he in violation of of canadian public health order uh with regards to the quarantine so i thought there was a legitimate um uh societal cause for that person to go wow wait a second what's jim benning doing here at the grocery store i'm gonna snap his 
photo. In any other circumstance, following the guy around a grocery store to take his photo, like to me, that's crossing the line. Like to me, just let the guy do groceries. Yes, he's human like you and me. He eats as well. He goes and buys food <laughs> at a super, like, you know, what's so difficult to understand about that? Um, but that feeds into, and you know, I'm not sure we have time for this discussion. And, you know, frankly, uh, um, I think it's probably even broader than the four of us uh, to comment on it. But, you know, it, it, there just seems to be this mindset out there now that famous people, whether the whether they're in the world of, you know, politics or art or athletics, are two-dimensional media images and not three-dimensional human beings. That because I consume them mostly as two-dimensional media images off the screen, that I can treat them in a different regard than I would treat, a th- um, you know, a person on the street, a colleague, a friend, you know, what a, a stranger even. So, um, look, this is a harsh market. This is going to remain a harsh market until there are Stanley Cup banners hanging at Rogers Arena. It's 50 plus years of Vancouver Canucks NHL hockey, and there is no championship banner up there. And we are a long way, I think, from a championship banner. So if you don't understand that this market in particular is as thirsty as it is for hockey success, one of the great hockey markets the world over, without you know being able to delight in the ultimate prize um then frankly that's not eyes wide open enough for me yeah that's not having a holistic understanding of the team you work for and the market that you work in uh and frankly um until there is a stanley cup banner hanging and and frankly when there is a stanley cup banner hanging at rogers arena or wherever else the people who are responsible for that uh, will be lionized in this province and this community forever. Yeah, That is the trade-off here. You are going into a pressure cooker. You are going into the boiling soup. It's going to be tough. You're going to take your lumps. There are going to be some scars. If you're successful here, they'll build statues of you and name streets after you. Well, and I, I like that a lot because I think that it it better represents the story of being in Vancouver and being associated or being a fan of the Vancouver Canucks is that there is that expectation. It's not that people are trying to be mean or try to be personal against uh, Jim Benning or any other executives. It's that there's a standard of expectation and desire to succeed that yeah. isn't being met. And yep. whatever it takes for that to, to happen yep. is what people want. Like, honestly, if it results in Jim Benning building what would be the Stanley Cup winner, then I'm sure there would be a lot of people that would be very happy with Jim yep. Benning and there would be statues of him, uh, much like where Pat Quinn and, and Roger Nielsen are in, in front of yeah. Roger's arena. But yeah, the fact that we haven't seen it didn't even win. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Not to the Stanley Cup final, but like the root of it is this, uh, Sean. Uh, the most valuable investment you can make is your time. The second most valuable investment you can make is your money, your dollars. There are an awful lot of people in this province who have invested a whole ton of their time over the years and a whole ton of their money in the Vancouver Canucks and they don't feel like they have value. They don't feel 
like they have been commensurately rewarded for that time and for that money. So that is why we are where we are today here. The thing that um, I don't get is why he still has a job, but obviously that's something that most fans are wondering about as well. But uh, the other thing that stood out to me in his most recent press conference is the notion that he might stay if he if the team makes the playoffs next year. And I just don't, I don't understand it because it seems like if we were to make the playoffs, it'll be at the expense of future seasons, like what we did last year, right? Yeah. So, like, I just don't get if we make the playoffs, is he going to sign another extension? Are, are fans just going to, does he think fans are just going to forget about everything that's been going on for the past seven years or so? Yeah. Well, of course, fans don't make the decision, right? Uh, and that's Fortunate what we not. Uh, he's got two years left on his deal. So, you know, in his world, in Francesco's world right now, it's it's two more years of this um, uh, unless there's an intervening event. Making the playoffs next year may not portend well for the future, but it gives you a good story to spin. Hey, we're a playoff team. We're back in the playoffs. Two or three years, we're in the playoffs, and we still have these young players. The future looks bright. And so, so long as you can um, continue to cultivate some degree of faith and optimism from enough people to, you know, fill your building to a reasonable uh, number of fans and, and, and um, watch your games on television to a reasonable television number that it makes them both commercially viable, um, then you can continue. You can continue in this regard. Um, so, you know, for Jim Benning, the most important thing well, if I make the playoffs next year, I probably get to serve out the year after that, right? They're probably not going to move on me uh, if we make the playoffs because we'll have a good enough story to tell. And so that is the danger here, that you're going to have so many eggs in next year's basket in an attempt for the general manager uh, to not only make the team successful, but to preserve his seat on the throne. And then, of course, he's in his lame duck season. So is yes. he now getting an extension after that? Great question. They let a coach play it out this year, Malcolm. I don't know. I think they might let a GM play it out as well. Um, it's hard to answer that question until we see exactly what next year look like looks like. But I could see an extension. I could see playing out the lame duck year. Or at that point, I can see a firing being a little bit more ready because, of course, uh, a little bit more readily uh, avail uh, possible because at that point, you're only paying out the one year, not the two. And I do think the uh, Aquilinis have an aversion to um, paying people not to work for them. I think, uh, I think Luigi is an old school and principled guy and that that doesn't jive with him very well. And frankly, when I put myself in his shoes, that wouldn't jive with me either. It's just a matter of how bad that employee is. <laughs> yeah. He can Not do a lot enough. less damage sitting at home than he can in the, yeah. the big office. Yeah. So leading to me to my final question for you today before we let you go, what would you say the odds are that we trade our first round pick this year? Um, I think they're pretty good. I think, I mean, to the extent that odds on trading a first round pick are good. I mean, let's face it. Most teams go up there and, and make a pick from the podium. So, um, you know, if it's 80, 90% of the time that you make the pick from the podium, I think this one is uh, a little more likely to fall into that 10, 20 uh, perspective 
percent, despite the fact they just did it two years ago, right? Uh, with JT Miller trained that first round pick, uh, that came home to roost, uh, what last year, uh, last year, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 It's also, uh, all <laughs> yeah, time yeah. No, the past right. now in the future is the only thing um, that matters. Time's a fast so circle. If everything goes to form with the lottery, they're picking ninth. Um, if they're picking first or second, I, I'm not sure they would have the chutzpah to, to trade that pick out. At, at that point, I think you're dealing with an asset and a marketing tool that even if it doesn't perfectly fit the general manager and the coach's requirements for this upcoming season, it is it would be very, very difficult for the owner of the GM um, to have to face the public after trading a, a first or second pick. So I think if they win one of the lottery spots, they'll take a player. Uh, pick number nine, or look, it could be pick 10 or 11, right? If teams from behind them wind up winning the draws uh, and pick in, in the one and two slots. But if we're talking about uh, a pick between nine and 11, I think there's a fair chance. Yeah, I do for a, a number of reasons. And not all of them have to do with, you know, Jim Benning's desperation to make the playoffs next year. If you take a look at this draft class, draft crop, nine might be right on the outside looking in of that first good cohort of prospects, right? Nine may get maybe a little too far out to get to one of these six, seven, maybe eight prospects who are all in somewhat of a similar tier in terms of how they project as professionals. So, uh, I, you know, I think there's that. I think there's the fact that, yes, they absolutely do, absolutely do need help for this coming season, and they do need help without having to commit a lot of cap dollars. And a good way to do that is to tr trade a, a high first-round pick because I think that brings some players into, into play who aren't necessarily making the huge money yet and that you can plug in and feel like, okay, this is good investment. We're getting this player for, you know, a relatively cheap salary and they're going to play immediately. Um, and uh, then there's the history, fellas, and I don't know what to say about this. It is truly one of the great mysteries of this administration. Uh, I just, you know, I guess it's impatience or anxiousness or feeling the pressure and feeling a need to respond to it with immediate results. But for a guy who's got an amateur scouting background and for an administration that's done pretty well at the draft table, I mean, two for 10 with top 10 or two for four with top 10 picks, which isn't good enough, but you know, they have done reasonably well unearthing draft picks uh, beyond the top 10 and into the later rounds, why they have been so quick to trade draft picks, why they have been so willing to send the draft capital out the door that they have, but they have been. And so you have to anticipate that it's something that they're willing to do again for the right, uh, for the right return. My best guess there is that they're so confident in their drafting. They, you know, they want to get three or four NHL players out of each draft and they think that they don't need as many kicks at the can to do that. Yeah. I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> That's my best guess. Uh, yeah. First of all, three or four NHL players out of every draft. I mean, you'd be the best drafting GM. Well, but, aim, but, aim for. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily uh, know what the prevailing wisdom is there. 
but right from the jump, they were trading out uh, picks in this administration for ready-made players. So, you know, that almost suggests that they, you know, feel like uh, that that's almost erring on the side of your pro scouting more so than your amateur scouting. Yeah. Absolutely. To me, it's the thing I say. It's, you know, if Jim had learned from his mistakes, if he didn't keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again, it would be a lot easier for me to be hopeful or, you know, optimistic about this offseason. It's just we've seen the same things over and over. Like, yep. you know, when he says, I'm, I'm planning on being aggressive this offseason, I just went by first and second round pick. Like, yeah, I didn't, no, you know, could... didn't even have a what else could he mean? To me, that was, you know, he might as well have just said, you know, we're going to trade our first and our second for the best we can get this summer. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. And, you know, uh, in terms of repeating the mistakes, you know, Tanner Pearson uh, at $3 million plus on a three-year deal as he was tracking towards a 30-point season in 82 games. Um, and you just and sort of no trade protection. They, you know, were they, you know, how they conceive of value versus how the rest of the industry conceives of value and, and shake your head at, at some of the contracts they sign. That's the worrisome part, too, is that heading into the summer, this is them looking for depth scoring, which has historically over these last seven years come at a hefty premium uh, to the Canucks and and for very minimal depth scoring at all, to little to none, really. Like you look at Sutter's contract, Beagle's contract, Furland, like those guys weren't brought in to be scorers. They're brought in to be penalty killers, which is such a wild investment to make. Uh, but yeah, because uh, anybody really can kill penalties. Like, let's be real here. Almost anybody can kill penalties. Simple, Sean. Uh, I don't think it's I do think you need some degree of expertise on penalty killing, but you're quite right. Like to the degree they have valued penalty killing uh, versus other teams, um, particularly when you haven't had sort of, you know, either strong scoring or, you know, top four defense, um, has been um, uh, quite a calculation and frankly a miscalculation. And, you know, in my world, and it doesn't work out this neatly, I will confess, but you pay your top six forwards, you pay your top four defensemen, you pay your starting goaltender, then you hope to round out the rest of the roster with young, cheap labor that you drafted and developed. And if that's not available, then you go and hit the secondary market, the B and the C markets for positional fits, specific players with specific skill sets at specific price points to fill in the gaps and round out your roster. And when that player goes to you and says, well, I need 4 million or I need 3 million over four years to be your fourth line center and your primary penalty killer, you have the courage to walk away. You say, no, we're not going to be paying that sort of profile of player who slots at that level of our roster, that kind of money and that kind of term. And that has something that this management group has traditionally not done. They don't do fear of loss. They don't walk away when the bidding gets too high. I mean, that's what Bo Zito did with, with the Panthers um, this year, right? Paying, what, uh, Carter Verhage less than a million. Um, I don't think he was the one who signed the Bob contract, if, if I'm not mm. mistaken. Right, so yeah. Talent. Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's the sort of GM that, that we need, but it just seems like we always do things backwards, so. 
Well, I know we got to let you go here, Matt, yeah. but uh, really appreciate your time here today. Is there anything that you wanted to mention? Of course, everyone I'm sure who listens to us already listens to Sakaris and Price, but uh, is there anything else that you wanted to mention? Well, just uh, we've been so appreciative of the support from Canucks fans and sports fans across British Columbia here over these first couple of months that we branched out on our own. And uh, yeah, if you want to listen, SakarisonPrice.com, 3 to 6 p.m. We're live daily, also available on podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, whatever your preferred platform is. And other than that, Sean, Bill, Malcolm, thanks for the time, guys. Appreciate the discussion as well. Uh, best of luck with your venture. Seems to be going really well here caught last week with Rachel Dory and, and wish you guys continued success as well. Very much Thank appreciated. You. Yeah, I appreciate that, Matt. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Allow me to introduce Pie Stick Vodka, a new way to celebrate victory. Gather around the glass with an award-winning, ultra-premium Canadian-made vodka. You probably won't listen when I say High Stick Vodka has a smooth, hard-hitting taste, or that it's developed in the birthplace of hockey. You won't listen when I say High Stick Vodka is a tribute to the game of hockey, or when I tell you it's distilled four times using Canada's purest mountain spring water to provide an authentic, remarkable flavor. But maybe you will listen when I say it comes in a f***ing hockey stick. Showcase your passion for hockey with our limited edition hand-blown hockey stick bottle. Whether you're celebrating victory or drinking to defeat, High Stick Vodka is better after every shot. Visit us at HighStickVodka.com. It also comes in this regular bottle. Celebrate victory. Drink responsibly.